Praise the Lord. You may be seated. Great presence of the Lord here this evening. It's always wonderful to come gather together on a Wednesday evening with believers and uh, just feel the presence of God, just the, 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 the peace and the strength of God that we can feel gathered here, just the strength that we have in his name. I'll tell you, as they were, were singing, I'll echo what Brother George was saying, you know, and I, as they were singing, it was just reminding me, you know, we've had some wonderful services lately. Just, just the, the, feel the, the momentum um, that, that we've been having as a church and just feel just the, the presence of God that's been here the last number of weeks especially and really excited about this coming Sunday. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more before we wrap up this evening, but especially for this coming Sunday, but Pentecost Sunday, be in prayer about that. Pray for Brother Gore and invite friends or family. Have someone come out. Again, it's Pentecost Sunday and such an exciting time as a church as we look back and celebrate the day of Pentecost, the birth of the church, the outpouring of the Spirit, but also for us today how that promise is still alive, is still available to each of us. And when we talk about momentum, you know, I've been, been taught that when, we, when we're talking about momentum, what we're really saying is how we gain momentum, so to speak, as a church, is when we're seeing individuals like you and like me throughout the week, and when we're praying and when we're reading scripture and we're, we're, we're tapped into the, the, the voice of God, so to speak, and we're sensitive to what God is, is ministering right now, and we gather together here on Wednesdays and on Sundays, and we're already coming, and we've come with a word from God, and we've come full, and, and we've come with energy and, and, and anointing. And when enough of us gather together in here, that, that creates an atmosphere. And we start to break this atmosphere of momentum and of the presence of God. And so that whenever we're talking about momentum, that's what we're speaking of, that there's, there's this, this general presence, this atmosphere that we've been feeling, I feel like we're, we're gaining momentum as a church as we look the last two, three years. We're, we're gaining momentum of what God is doing here at New Life, and I'm thankful for that. Again, echo Miss Pastor and Sister Shaw this evening are taking a, a much-needed vacation, much well-deserved vacation for a couple days. They'll be back here on Sunday. I'm going to turn to the Word of the Lord this evening. If you have your Bibles, we're going to go to the book of Ezra. And we're going to talk a little bit about valued among the treasure. Valued among the treasure. And we'll read the passage here real quick, and then we'll kind of go back into it here in just a, a few moments, and we'll read it once again. But Ezra chapter 1, I'm going to read starting in verse 7. Ezra chapter 1, starting in verse 7. King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Mithrada, the treasurer, and counted them to Sheshbazar. That's such a name. The prince of Judah. This is the number of them. 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of similar kind, and 1,000 other articles. In verse 11, all the articles of gold and silver were 5,400. And all these Shashbazar took 
with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. From this passage, and we'll dive into it and we'll read it again here shortly, I want to talk for just a few moments this evening, valued among the treasure. Have you ever owned anything or maybe anything's been given to you, uh, a gift maybe for a holiday or a birthday that was just particularly special to you and was, was valuable, even if this item didn't have any high specific monetary value, if just this, this article, that this item that you have, maybe it was a gift or maybe it was something that was passed down when uh, a family member or a loved one passed away, or an article, maybe something that you picked up, a memento from maybe a, a time you had traveled somewhere and saw a token or just a memory of, of that trip that you had taken. Can you think of maybe something in your life that maybe the, the actual value, the, the monetary value of it, the, the, the quality of it, so to speak, is not that expensive, not that high, but to you, it's a treasure. It's, it's something that you hold dear, that's special to you. I think that ultimately when we look at items like this, these, these, these special trinkets or, or tokens, Really, it's less about the, the quality or the craftsmanship of the article itself and more about the context or the story behind what was there, the, the, the story behind this item or this gift. On a different note, maybe you can think of it this way. Uh, if, you, if you are a hunter or if, if, you, if you know a hunter, Maybe if you go to their home or if you go visit their office or something and you see maybe a deer uh, mounted on the wall or maybe some other animal and you, you know, m make a remark about it. You're like, hey, you know, that's a nice deer or that's a, that's a nice fish or, or, or something of that note. Right, you're laughing because you know what happens next, right? It's like, man, let me tell you about whenever I got that buck. It was 2012, I was hunting on a friend's lease, it was the last day of the season, it was a really cold, like, foggy morning, and you hear the whole story about how they finally got this buck that they have been hunting for, like, six years, right? Because the story is what gives that deer value. It, 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 it's, it's less, this is just an animal, but the fact that there was, there's a story, there's context, there's something behind it, that's, that's what gives it value, that's what gives this deer or this animal value. It's, it's personal, it's specific. Maybe kind of giving one, one more example, you may be familiar with a story from a number of years ago. Uh, there was a lady who was at a, at a thrift store in uh, California, and she was there, she was shopping with a number of friends, and while there they saw this, this, this really large painting, and they decided, hey, it, it, they thought it looked awful, and they said, hey, we're going to uh, buy this and like, destroy it or throw darts at it or do something. So they actually ended up purchasing it. And there was, there was no price tag or anything that was on this painting. And so when they got up to the, the register to ask about you know, how much they were selling it for, they didn't really know and it wasn't really in their inventory. And so the lady at the counter was like, well, we'll sell it to you for five bucks. So she buys this painting for five dollars. Had it for years. I talked about how they were going to like throw darts at it and they were going to destroy it and put it in a bonfire at one point and nothing ever happened with it. And so a number of years later she said, hey, like she's having a, a, a yard sale and decided that she's just going to sell this painting. Well, one of the passerbys who saw this painting recognized what it looked like. It looked like an early Jackson Pollock painting. It was a very famous 20th century American painter. And he said, hey, but before you sell this, you really need to get this appraised and find out what the actual value of this 
of this painting is and, and Saul to figure out a little bit more. Long story short, she ended up having it appraised and they on the spot offered her $2 million and she rejected it because they found out that most likely it's probably worth a couple hundred million dollars. A painting that she paid $5 for that had no real value in the thrift store, had no real value. It's been sitting in her friend's trailer on the floor for years. They were going to throw darts at it and they put it in a bonfire. Little did any of them know that this painting was kind of a lost painting that could be worth hundreds of millions of dollars. The purpose, as we understand, is that value is often ascribed by context, by story, or by experience. We understand that when we look at something, whether it's a deer or a painting or a book or a photo or some, excuse me, type of family heirloom, we understand that there's, it's the context of how it's meaningful to us that gives value to what this article is. It's why we, we, we keep um, heirlooms in our family, or it's, it's why we have trinkets or tokens that remind us of friends or family members, because we know that this is valuable to us. It's meaningful in our story or our context. We find another example of this in Scripture, the, the passage that we read this evening, and, and kind of maybe giving us a little bit of history, getting to where we were here in the first chapter of Ezra, the Old Testament starts with creation. And as we walk from creation, it begins to tell us the story or the account of God creating a, a, a people to himself. And so we, we see in, in Genesis the, the creation account, and we find that God then starts to, to have this relationship and calls out a man by the name of Abraham and calls him to himself, and he promises this man Abraham that he's going to be a father of many nations, and there's, there, his descendants are going to be as plenteous as the stars in the sky and the sand beneath his feet. And he begins to make this covenant and this relationship with Abraham. As the story progresses and we move through Genesis and into Exodus, we understand that these, this, this nation as they become then is held captive for several hundred years in Egypt. And we get to Exodus where they, they flee from this bondage and from this captivity. And they are led by a man named Moses out across the Red Sea to a promised land that God promised their descendants back through Abraham. As the story of the Israelites continues, we find that God ministers to them as they wander, looking for their promised land. There we see this nation begin to emerge as we find a tabernacle, and God begins to make covenant with them, and, and he, uh, he, He's going to dwell with them, and they're going to be His people, and He's going to be their God. And we, again, continue through the Old Testament. We find time and time again where God is, is desiring this relationship with these people, and they do well for a while, and then they you know, build a golden calf, and then we fast forward a little while, and they demand a king, and God gives them a king, and that doesn't turn out very well for any of them. And we see over and over again, there's this ebb and flow in the relationship between God and his people, the Israelites. And there's times of great spiritual fervor as we look maybe at King David, and then we see as a chain of events after him with idolatry and sinfulness that continues to plague the nation. Along this whole story, we find that it's the prophets who give commentary of God calling and, and calling his people to return back to communion with him, back to their identity and back to their promise as his people. 
The nation, of course, continues to slump further and further into sin, and king after king continues to turn their backs towards God. Until we arrive at the 25th chapter of Jeremiah, where we read the prophecy that God was speaking to his people, and he says, I'm going to allow you to go into captivity for 70 years at the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians. Because of their, their sinfulness, because of their continued rejection, he was, he was saying, this is the judgment of your actions and your continued idolatry. Jerusalem would fall, the people of God would be marched out of their promised land in chains. And when you think about that, when we arrive here at the beginning of Ezra and the kind of corresponding books here, Ezra and Nehemiah and, and Esther gives, gives kind of context here, this is the historical bookend to the New Testament. So if, if you're reading through the New Testament, it can get kind of difficult to find time and place and where you know, are we in this story when we've got all the historical books at the beginning and then we have all these prophets and poetry and wisdom literature. But when we're talking about the Old Testament as a whole, the, the, the account or the story, the, the history of the Old Testament ends here with Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther providing some more background here. So this is kind of the end where the history of the Israelite nation ends and then goes into 400 years of silence before Christ. The reason for this and the importance of mentioning that is this land, the, the, the promised land that the Israelites had, had captured, this, this was a land saturated in prophecy. This was a land whenever we read through the, the prophecies of Isaiah and we read through the, the prophecies in, in many of the Psalms. This was a land where they're saying the Messiah is going to come out of Bethlehem, not, not Babylon. This, this land that, that we have where we're dwelling, this is the land where the Messiah is going to be born. This is the land of our promise. And so you can imagine how demoralizing it was to their faith when Nebuchadnezzar captures Jerusalem, carries them away into bondage, carries them out of their promised land, out of the land where the Messiah would come from, out of the land that God had given them to now dwell in a pagan land. This is where we find the, 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 the history of, uh, of 70 years that spans between being captured by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar into the first chapter here in the book of Ezra. And if you kind of skim through the first seven verses prior to what we read this evening, you find that God comes and he visits Cyrus, and it's been 70 years. And at this point, the, the, the word of, the, of prophecy from Jeremiah has come to pass, and God says, all right, now it's time for you to go back to Jerusalem. And so the, the, the scripture tells us that God stirred the heart or the spirit of Cyrus, and he was sending them back to Jerusalem, back to their promised land, back to this land of, of prophecy and of covenant with God. So here we begin, we're 70 years into the future here with, with the beginning of the book of Ezra. And this king issues a decree that he's sending the people of Israel back to rebuild the temple of God. And as we read earlier, we read through that he tells his, his treasurer, uh, Mithrida, to count out all of the articles that they had taken from the temple of God, that they had taken from the temple here in Jerusalem. Count out all of the articles, all the gold, all the silver, all the, 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 the bronze, everything that we had taken. Count all that out and give it back to the Israelites so that they, would, they return back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. They're doing so with the articles that were originally in Solomon's temple. 
And of course, we read here that they counted out and the number of them was 30 gold basins and there was 1,000 silver platters. There's 29 knives and 30 gold basins and 410 silver basins of a similar kind and 1,000 other articles. And altogether, there's 5,400 articles of gold and silver and other metals. Listed here, the, the writer outlines in detail the articles that originally would have served as worship in the house and in, in, in Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. But when the Babylonian armies invaded and when, when the, the temple, Solomon's temple was burned down and when Jerusalem was ransacked and fire burned their homes and their friends and families perished, here these articles were taken captive placed in a temple of foreign gods. 5,400 articles were told, gold and silver, precious metals, all the like. We have gold basins and platters. And amongst all of that, we're told, there's 29 knives. 29 knives. The Hebrew word, in fact, here, is, it's only ever used at this place in Ezra. And so even translators are like, you know, it means knives. You have no idea what this means. There's no detail, but... Some, for whatever reason, they stole 29 knives, which kind of makes me wonder why. Like, okay, so you're going and you're burning down the city and you're ransacking this temple and like all the guys who are running with you and like stealing all this gold, I mean, this is Solomon's temple and all its grandeur and glory that, I mean, some of those, like reading back through historical accounts, said that on a sunny day you couldn't even look directly at it because in such its glory and majesty, it would blind you. This is the temple we're talking about. And some dude runs in there and steals 29 knives. And like, why? Why the knives? Well, when we look at the story, we look at the account, we look at the fact that they hauled 29 knives over 900 miles across the Mediterranean, or excuse me, across the Middle Eastern desert. We ask, what was the value? What was the importance of these knives? Whether it was a Babylonian soldier or a rabbi, priest, who like, you know, smuggled these knives onto some cart or something. However, they somehow ended up in Babylon. However, they got there. What we know is that when Cyrus was sending the, the people of Israel back to rebuild the temple, amongst the 5,400 pieces of gold and silver and other articles, somewhere in the midst of it all, they found 29 knives. 29 knives. The fact remains this evening that these, whether they were constructed of precious or costly metals or if they simply served a purely utilitarian purpose in the temple and worship before the Lord. The fact remains that when, when Jeremiah prophesied that this captivity had a time limit, when, when Jeremiah prophesied that for 70 years the Israelites are going to be in, in captivity in Babylon, but after 70 years they're going to return, the simple fact is when they returned back to the temple, they were going to need to offer a morning and an evening sacrifice. And in order to offer a sacrifice, in order for their sins to be atoned, in order to attain the mercy and the grace of God, in order to do so, the only way was for a priest to offer a bull or a goat or a lamb. The only way that they could make sacrifice to the Lord is if the priest had a knife. 
these 29 knives represented more than whatever costly value or metal or whether they had gold or silver or, or bedazzled, whatever it was, whether they were just simply these, these just purely utilitarian hunks of, of metal or if they truly were costly, what the simple fact remains, these knives meant something more than their material value. These knives connected the people of Israel to the mercy of their God. It connected them to his love and his means of them escaping the judgment of their own sins. This was the way that God had, had intended for them to be able to connect in relationship with him at the time. The knives were integral to their worship and they were integral for atonement and for them to connect and worship God. For a nation living in captivity in a pagan land, their identity had been stripped away from them, their religious practices and their, their means of experiencing and having a relationship with God had come crashing down when they marched out of this promised land. They were strangers in a strange land. Their temple was destroyed. Their homes were gone. The fire that they had placed on the altar had gone out. And living here in judgment, living at the cost of their own sin, away as it seems from God, we find God still had a plan. God's mercy and his grace was still at work in the midst of it all. Because even in the middle of judgment, even in the middle of being ripped away from the promised land that they dwelled in and taken from what seemed like the, the very presence of God, God was already preparing a way for their return. The, the prophecy from Jeremiah had said they'd be there for 70 years. Gathering dust in a foreign temple to a pagan god was 5,400 pieces of gold and silver and articles and 29 knives, knowing that there will come a day. There will come a day when the temple will, will be rebuilt. There will come a day when, when they'll return back to Jerusalem, when they will, will once again worship God in their promised land. And when that day comes... These are the articles that they will need. These are the vessels and the platters and the basins. These are the articles constructed for worshiping God. So it didn't matter how much dirt or dust or cobwebs or grime had collected on the articles. It didn't matter if the gold had lost its shine or if the silver had begun to tarnish or if the blades had lost their edge. In the midst of the darkness and the midst of the gloom of a pagan land that they lived in, in the midst of a pagan temple where it seemed like the light had gone out, in the right hands, the gold could be repolished and the dust and the dirt could be wiped away. The, the, the cobwebs could be cleaned and the blades could be resharpened. Twenty-nine knives sat ready for the next time when they would once again serve in the temple, 5,400 pieces, articles set ready for the next time that they would once again be returned to the temple of the Lord to worship. We find another example, kind of dovetailing here for a second. We find another example of this in the life of Joseph. If you're familiar with the life of Joseph, we find that he was the favorite of the, the, the 12 sons of Jacob, and he was maybe spoiled a little bit, and he had this coat of many colors, and at 17 years old, he has this dream where his sheaves of, of wheat or barley, whatever it was they were harvesting, his sheave like stands up, and all of the other 11 that are around him, they bow down before him, and he, of course, goes and tells it to his 11 brothers that he's interpreted his dream. These guys are going to bow down to him. 
we see that a couple days later or so in the story, he, he has another dream. And in this dream, the sun and the moon and the stars, 11 stars, they bow down before Joseph. And he, of course, goes, tells his dad and his brothers. And as you can understand, this guy was bullied by his brothers a lot. The story continues where he was, was sold into slavery. He would end up being falsely accused, would end up in a jail in Egypt. And here, this man with promise, his favorite son, this spoiled son of Jacob, the son of promise, the son of his old age, the son who he loved, this son, Joseph, ends up in a prison. And here in a prison, he meets a baker and a butler, and he interprets their dreams. And one of them goes, and they go before Pharaoh, and one of them is, is, is executed. The other is appointed to the right hand of Pharaoh. And he says, when this happens, just remember me. Again, if you know the story, two years passes by, and the guy's like, man, I, I forgot about Joseph. Because at this point, Pharaoh had another dream, and no one could interpret it. But what Scripture tells us here, when, we, when you read through the life of Joseph, is that all of this is taking place. For two more years, he's spending just sitting in a prison cell, falsely accused. And here he is, and when they can find no one else to interpret Pharaoh's dream. In Exodus 41, 14, we read, Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him quickly out of the dungeon. He shaved, he changed, and he came to Pharaoh. In the midst of who knows how many years leading up to this moment, he's, he's been falsely sold into slavery by his brothers who gave their father this ripped-up garment, allowed him to believe that he had been killed by a wild beast. He's been lied on, he's been forgotten about, and here he is in a dungeon, and when Pharaoh has a dream, Joseph is ready. All that he needed to do in this account was he showered or shaved, he changed, and he went before Pharaoh. The point of the matter for us this evening as we look back to, to the, the life of Joseph and as we look to the account of the articles of gold and silver in the house of the Lord in Babylon is that when God's plan comes to fruition, no matter how dark the season it may seem to be, when God's plan was there, when, when the, the, the right circumstance unfolded and Joseph's name is called and they lead him out of this prison, he was ready. He was prepared. He hadn't rejected God in the midst of, of the jail cell. He hasn't turned his back on, no, I don't, I don't interpret dreams anymore. Joseph had prepared himself. Joseph was ready. We find in Scripture that no matter what it seems like, whatever the, the circumstances or the darkness of life that may be around us, when we're talking about the Word of God, the, the promise of God in our lives, what we know is that Scripture in Matthew 24 reminds us that heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will by no means pass away. In Isaiah 55, 11, we, we read that so shall my word that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish that what that I please. It shall prosper in the thing which I sent it. Much like the Israelites, much like Joseph for years on end, waiting, waiting for the, the dream to be fulfilled, like the temples gather, excuse me, the, the articles of the temple gathering dust and dirt, sitting, waiting to once again return back to their purpose of worshiping God. What we know is that we can look around in our lives today. We can look easily around the world that we live in at maybe the circumstances of our own lives, the, the, the promises or the prayers, the, the faith that we have, the hope that we have, and 
Maybe we, it can be easy to turn our back and say, God, the, the dichotomy that I seem to see of the promise that I believe and the hope that I have and yet the reality of what I'm seeing today. We can get caught up in saying, okay, God, where's the answer here? Where's, where, where, I, I believe that you're a healer, and I believe that you're a miracle worker, and I, I believe that you can intervene, but this is what I'm seeing here today. What we know about the Word of God, what we know about the promise that we have in Him, is that our hope is rooted in Calvary's cross. Our hope is rooted in the simple fact that His Word will not return void, that His Word, heaven and earth, will pass away, but His Word will never pass away. The hope that we have as Christians is that whether in this life or in the life to come, whether, whether it's here today or it's in the life that we have the hope of eternal glory, that there is still salvation to be found. There's, there's still hope and there's still peace. There's still joy and healing to be found here this evening because we believe that God is still alive. God is still available to you and to me. It's the foundation, the, the strength that we can lean upon when we are weak. As Christians, our hope is forever settled in, 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 in the cross and an empty tomb, the promise of salvation, the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So as we look at Ezra, as we look at those 29 knives that were among the, the treasure that was taken from the temple, it invites us to look at our own lives. Look at those, those things in our lives that we value, the values that, that we have as individuals, the, the values that, that, that we hold here today, the knives that were carried some 900 miles and stored for 70 years in a temple, these knives would one day be essential to the morning and the evening sacrifice when the temple was rebuilt. These were critical to the atonement and the grace and the mercy, the redemption that God had in store for the sins of the nation. They sat gathering dust seemingly, where is God 36 or 37 years into this promise? It can be easy to say, okay, God, we know you said 70 years, but I mean, it's not, we're like 35 years. Is. How are we going to, how are we going to make it through this? We read in, in the Psalms, for example, whenever they, they hung their harps by the willows, they said, how can we sing the, the Psalms, the praises of the Lord in a strange land like this? The, the, it's easy to look in the, uh, at the world around us and the circumstances that we live in and say, God, where is the answer? Where is the hope that we can lean upon? But what we find is that though the nation of Israel had walked away, repeatedly turned their backs on God, his mercy and his plan for redemption continued all along the way. For us this evening, as we look at our own lives, we introspectively look at ourselves and maybe at the world around us and the circumstances that we see unfolding in our world and global conflicts and concerns here at home, and we look at everything going on around us, we say, okay, God, what's the answer? Where, where do we put our hope and our, our, our trust and our strength? Where do we find peace in the midst of times like these, what we find is that the values that we have, that the values of the lifestyle practices that we have, we see have come under attack in the world around us and are not valued in the world around us many today. We see the values of maybe honesty or being built on, on a foundation of Christ, the values of a Christian life and in, 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 in giving ourselves to him. We find that that 
has come under attack in the world being rejected today. For each of us, personally, we must ask ourselves, what do we truly value? What values do you hold? What is valuable to you personally in your life? Maybe family or your faith or friends or financial security or health or whatever other multiplicity of values that you hold. The question that we have today and in times like those that we live in, we have to take a step back and say, what truly do I value? What is meaningful? What is grounding? What, what is purposeful in my life that, ground, that, that grounds me? I would encourage you to think intentionally about that. Think about the values that you hold and what, what is imp important to you personally. Because we understand that it's, it's your values that dictate your lifestyle. It's your values that dictate the decisions that you make and how you spend your money and how you orient your time and how you, you spend time with friends or with family. We understand that it's our values that provide the framework that the rest of our life is built around. If you remember, Pastor, Pastor uh, taught about this on a Wednesday a number of weeks ago where he was talking about the importance of the values in our own lives. Kind of following this, this train of thought, let me add to that by saying that whatever you value, whatever is important in your life, make sure that somewhere along the way you've got 29 knives. Somewhere in the values that you hold, somewhere in the, the values that you cling to that orient your time and the way you spend your money and the way you invest your, 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 your energy and, and how you live out your life and the time you spend with family and friends and the hobbies that you have in your interest, make sure that somewhere along that list of values, somewhere along the things that you hold most dear in your life, you've, you've got 29 knives. 29 articles that connect you to the mercy and the grace and the peace of God. Somewhere in the midst of it all, that, that when times get tough and crisis comes, that says, this is where I can go, I can cling to the cross. This is where I can find safety and security and foundation for my life. Because what I've personally seen is that there's nothing that seems to redistribute our values more than crisis. We see, for example, two vivid ex uh, examples of this in Scripture. We look at Jonah. Jonah, you know, prophet, God speaks to him, tells him to go to Nineveh. He says no, hops on a, a, a boat to Tarshish. And here in this, in this boat, as they're on this sea, there's this storm that, that, that rages. And if you read through the account, we find that these sailors, as they're trying to save their lives and, and spare the vessel, it says that they start to load cargo off of the boat and cast it into the sea to lighten the boat that they could better steer it amidst the waves and the wind. This cargo that they would have been transporting would most likely have been paid cargo, uh, cargo that someone paid them to take to Tarshish. It wasn't just like random stuff that they just like tossed on here because like, hey, you know, it'd be nice to have an extra sail or something. This would, have, this would most likely have been grain or fine linens. This would have been articles that were, were sold to them by merchants that they could take to Tarshish for a profit. So here in the midst of this storm, in the midst of the crisis that they were living in, what quickly became a value was less about making a profit and more about how do I stay alive. The exact same thing happens when we look at, at Acts chapter 27. Here, um, Paul is on a ship 
and they're, they're sailing, and it goes through his whole story as they're ultimately getting him to Rome. And here, as we're reading through this story, you know, Paul says, Hey, listen, you know, an angel came and told me, like, we probably shouldn't, you know, set sail here. And the story continues, and they go, and they once again face a storm. And the exact same thing happens. This ship would have been a merchant ship that was carrying cargo and precious linens and, and grains and perhaps could have even been carrying uh, like gold and silver and other fine metals. And the second that this storm hits, we read that in, in, in um, Acts 27, that the storm hits and the next day, Paul writes that they, they lightened the ship and they tossed the cargo off and they got rid of the tackle. And the whole point being how do we save our lives? How do we save this boat? How do we make it out of here alive? The value on that ship quickly changed as the crisis and the storm set in. And we can see where the same thing happens in so many of our lives. The, the hobbies or the interests that we invest our time and our energy in, the second something happens, it's, we're forgetting about the hobbies, we're forgetting about that, and we're going to the hospital, we're sitting by a friend, we're, we're spending time because we're saying this is what matters most. It's crisis, it's those times that redistribute and orient our values. The storm determines what really mattered on those ships, and so we find the same in our lives. Coming back, kind of wrapping this, this up here this evening, when we're, when we're kind of bringing this all to a conclusion, we look and we ask, what, what truly is most valuable in my life? Those 29 knives somehow made it all the way 900 miles because someone said these have value. They were in the temple, they were there, they, 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 were, they were in the temple serving the purpose of worship to God, and they had value. They had purpose more than maybe whatever their material worth was. They had value because of the story, the context that they were connected to. These 29 knives were a means of being able to worship and connect to the mercy of God. As we look at our own lives, we say, what is most valuable to us? What are those values that I hold on to? What, what determines how I invest my time or my energy and my relationships around me? What I would encourage you as we're looking towards this coming Sunday to say, God, how, how can I best orient my, my life to be receptive of the promise that we have at Pentecost? Because the promise that, that we have today, because of Pentecost, God is no longer regulated to a mercy seat where blood on a, on, a, on a day of atonement is taken into the mercy seat to atone for the sins of a nation. God's presence is no longer hailed just behind a veil. But today, you and I can freely receive the Spirit. His Spirit is available to you and to me and to each and every. It's the promise that is for all of us. And so as we look at Pentecost, we look at the hope that we all have in Him. We can then say, God, how can, I, how can I reorient my values to somewhere in the midst of it all, there's 29 knives that ground me in the midst of crisis or concern, in the midst of whatever's going on in the world around me, that this is what I can build my life, this is what I can build a foundation, a, 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 a family upon, this is what I can stand upon in the midst of it all, because this is what matters most. It's here that we can lean upon for strength and for mercy. If we could all stand. This coming Sunday, of course, is Pentecost Sunday, and we'll celebrate the birth of Christ, or excuse me, we'll celebrate the, the birth of the church in the upper room uh, where the Spirit was poured out. And so I'd encourage you to spend some extra time in prayer this week 
for, for Pentecost Sunday. Pray for, for Brother Gore. Pray for our church that, that, that God would, would minister to those who come looking for what we're talking about this evening. Those who will gather here on, on Sunday who may not have had an experience like what you and I are talking about this evening, who may have never been filled with the Spirit or may have never been baptized in the name of Jesus, and they're looking for that thing of value, that thing that we can cling to that matters most, that, 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 that thing that can hold us and ground us in the presence of God and ultimately in His salvation. So I would encourage you to, to pray for this coming Sunday and to lean on what God is doing in each of our lives. Again, we talked about momentum and thankful for what God is doing here. We do so because there's people like you who said what, what, what matters most, what's valuable here is this church. But what, what, what's valuable in my life is my relationship with God. What, what, what's valuable is faithfulness and faithfulness in giving and coming to church. What's, what, what matters most is what you guys are doing. Let's bow our heads and let's just pray here in conclusion. Lord, we thank you for the presence that we have felt here this evening. God, we thank you for the continued work that you're doing in each and every one of our lives. God, we ask that as we leave this place this evening, that you would continue to stir our hearts, that God, we would, we would think about the remainder of this week of what, what, what do we value most? What are we investing our time and our energy? And God, what are, what are we doing to orient ourselves to your continued work of mercy and your continued call and leading in each of our lives? God, we ask that, that you would continue to use us for your glory, that, God, there would be a, a presence of your spirit here on Sunday morning, that you would anoint Brother Gore, that, God, you would use us for the work that you have here in Austin, Texas, that you would receive the glory. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Hope you have a great week, and you are dismissed.